0: Uh, Faye, I don't know about you, but out here in Washington, we're starting to see COVID on the rise yet again.
1: Same here. We're getting a lot more COVID patients back on the wards
0: over here, Nick. I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to really like find and get back into what exactly I needed to do with a COVID patient after not seeing patients for so long with it.
1: Yeah. And the good thing is, you know, a lot of these resources are on the OBG Projects website and you can go in and go and find all the information that you need about COVID-19 outside of pregnancy and in pregnancy.
0: Yeah, they've got a button on their website that has topics ranging from FAQs for gynecologic care, treatment guidelines for COVID-19 if you've been reassigned outside and been placed into an ICU, as well as key research um, that's coming out, new stuff every single day.
1: Exactly. And the best way to get all of this information is if you subscribe to OBG First, which is their subscription service. You can get all of this information plus more and also create your own library of all the resources that you want from their
0: website. If you're a chief resident, you can get OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, see how you can get OBG First and all these nice COVID-19 updates for absolutely free.
1: All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is
0: Creogs Over, over Coffee.
1: Coffee. So today we have with us Dr. Erin Lips, who is a second year gynecology oncology fellow at Women and Infants Hospital Brown University. Dr. Lips is going to be talking to us today about cervical cancer. So welcome, Erin. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's quite a privilege.
0: Erin, we're super excited to have you, especially because, as you may or may not have noticed, Faye and I have been on an OB kick lately, so we need to get back onto some GYN topics. What do you have for our learning objectives today?
2: Yeah, so today I want to talk about cervical cancer, and I think the, the main three things that I want to make sure people come away with are an ability to sort of describe the staging system for cervical cancer and um, to describe the different treatments and when they're appropriate. So mainly kind of the difference between when we manage people surgically versus when we manage them with radiation and how to decide.
1: That's great, Erin. Um, my first question for you, and this may be a little unfair coming from two people who are maternal fetal medicine fellows, but talk to us about why we should care about cervical cancer, right? What are the, What's the incidence of cervical cancer and why? how does that impact our patient population?
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, cervical cancer, the thing that always amazes me is that cervical cancer is actually almost a completely preventable disease, which is an amazing fact when we consider how much cervical cancer there still is in the world. And that's largely because there is just not enough access to good routine screening and, and um, good preventive care. And so this is a really important thing to understand and, and um, be passionate about so that we can start working to close the gap Um, Cervical cancer, it's the fourth most common female malignancy worldwide, but what's really important to know is that the burden of the actual cancer diagnoses and the cancer-related deaths um, is really disproportionately weighted towards populations without access to adequate screening um, or adequate treatments. And so, like 90% of all of the cancer deaths from cervical cancer actually occur in low- and middle-income countries. Um, And the mortality in those countries is like 18 times what it is in in the more developed countries, which is Uh pretty profound. So in 2012, for instance, um, in high-income countries, cervical cancer was the 11th most common female cancer and the ninth most common cause of cancer mortality. But in low- and middle-income countries, it was actually the second most common cancer and the third most common cause of cancer death. And in Africa and Latin America, cervical cancer is actually the leading cause of cancer-specific mortality in women, which is huge. Wow. And I think, especially when we think about, you know, the patients who are affected by cervical cancer, a lot of them are really young, and so this is a lot of young women um, dying of of a totally preventable disease.
1: Yeah, totally. What about in the in the United States? Talk to us a little bit about you know the patients who are diagnosed with cervical cancer, um, and also the incidence and mortality there.
2: Yeah, so based on the SEER data, um, we estimate that in the U.S. in the year of 2020 alone, there are probably about 13,800 new cases of cervical cancer, and in terms of deaths, probably a little over 4,000 deaths per year related to cervical cancer. In the US, the median age of diagnosis is somewhere between 47 and 50 years old, but about half of those women are actually diagnosed under age 35, so very young. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, we just talked a little bit about the worldwide disparities, but even within the United States, there um, are huge racial, socioeconomic, geographic disparities. Um, for instance, uh, Black and Hispanic patients have the highest rates of cervical cancer. And if you look at a map of the US, there are actually certain states that have significantly higher rates of cervix cancer than others. And it's probably multifactorial, but I think overall and globally speaking, this is all you know due to, to poor access and um, large barriers to getting routine gynecologic care.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, we've talked before about pap smears and cervical cancer screening um, and highlighted there too about how, no you know, pre-malignant lesions and cervical cancer really is quite like a disease of disparity. Um, and it's really unfortunate in a way, because as you've said already, this is almost entirely preventable. Aaron, though, there are other risk factors for cervical cancer if we move kind of beyond the social context as well.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the number one risk factor, which I know you guys have talked about on the podcast before, is um, chronic infection with high risk HPV strains. And HPV really causes almost every case of cervical cancer that's out there. Um, And so, you know, finding ways to avoid HPV infection or prevent it to begin with is really an amazing way to prevent cervix cancers from occurring. Uh, But other risk factors include. Earlier age of sexual debut, um, higher number of sexual partners total in a lifespan, higher risk sexual partners, um, people who are immunosuppressed are at much higher risk of um, HPV infection and then resulting dysplasias and cancers, and that includes people like um, organ transplant patients or uh, patients who have HIV, for instance, they're at much higher risk, people who have um, other STIs, People who have had other vulvar or vaginal dysplasias, anyone who you know is is not attending their routine screening, as we've talked about, and then the last but not least risk factor that I like to talk about is tobacco use. Um, Tobacco use alone doubles the risk of, of high grade dysplasia and cancers, even after we control for HPV status. And so I always tell patients, you know, if you quit if you quit smoking right now, it's probably the best thing you can do to prevent this, you know, HPV infection. Um, from causing bad problems in terms of dysplasia and cancer, and um, it can it, it it has about a twofold risk reduction, which is pretty amazing.
1: That's really good to know, and I think you know, of course, there are a multiple. Uh, reasons for patients to stop smoking, but I think that's a great way to motivate patients, especially our population, to stop smoking as well. Um, And you know, I don't want to keep harping on prevention and access to care and things like that, but I did want to ask about what are things that patients can do or what we can do to prevent uh, cervical cancer since we've talked about that.
2: Yeah. So I usually think of prevention um, as kind of a, a twofold issue. Um, There is primary prevention and secondary prevention. And when I think of primary prevention, I think about avoiding or preventing the HPV virus from um, infecting people. And that is the HPV vaccine, which, um, yeah, I agree. We won't harp on it too much, but there's probably a 90% efficacy with HPV vaccine of preventing those really high risk HPV strains. Um, which is really awesome. And right now we have the nine valent vaccine, which came out in 2018. Um, and it's just getting better and better. Um, you know, each each uh, version of the vaccine is covering more strains and seems to be just as effective, which is great. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we are lagging behind some other countries in terms of HPV vaccination rates. Um, and so that is really an area of of uh, improvement for the future. In terms of secondary prevention, uh, the big thing is both pap smears um, and then also HPV testing. And actually currently HPV testing alone or, or primary HPV testing is actually an accepted way to test people um, for routine screening, even without cytology, even without the pap. Uh, but most institutions are still pretty um, attached to their pap screen, um, or sorry, their pap smear test and um, most are not quite ready to let go of that yet. So it might be a while before we see the PAP go away, but HPV testing um, combined with, with PAP is very important for secondary prevention.
0: Aaron, let's move from screening and risk factors onto to the actual presentation of the disease. It's, as you mentioned, you know, like 13, 14,000 cases a year in the United States. So probably not one that every resident is going to see during their residency. Um, What should we be thinking about or what should prompt us to think about cervical cancer as a diagnosis?
2: Right. And that's a super important question. A, A lot of patients in our country will present in an early stage um, and the problem is that it's not always very symptomatic or obviously symptomatic. And uh, many of these patients won't have symptoms at all, and it might be noticed on a routine screening or, or routine e- pelvic exam. Um, a lot of patients will have some abnormal bleeding, which is sometimes kind of intermittent. Um, many will have postcoital bleeding, and some will have some malodorous discharge. Certainly, in cases that are more advanced, these can present with different types of symptoms, which can be much more dramatic. Um, things like lower limb edema, flank pain, sciatica, etc. And then we don't usually see patients presenting with fistulas. But if if cancer is much more advanced, you know, this type of cancer has a tendency to invade into the bladder or the or the rectum, and that can present with um, so passage of urine or stool through the vagina.
1: So let's say we have a patient that comes and they present and we see some type of mass on their cervix. Um, what should we be thinking about in terms of you know, definitive diagnosis? Like What are things that we should be ordering for that patient? The only way to really
2: diagnose a cervix cancer is by getting a biopsy. And um, the diagnosis is 100% based on histopathologic assessment of that biopsy. And um, so, you know, if you're practicing in in a generalist practice and you see a cervix that looks like it has a mass on it, don't just do a pap smear, always get a biopsy of that. Um, Sometimes people are a little bit nervous about doing biopsies in their clinics because they worry that it will start bleeding. Usually one small biopsy of the cervix um, it won't, won't be a crazy amount of bleeding, and it's actually a pretty important step to getting the process moving and getting that diagnosis established, so I'd encourage people to do that um, just with a Tichler or something like that. And, and speaking of pathology, we know that probably about 80% of cervix cancers are squamous cell cancers, and 20% or so are adenocarcinoma, and there are a few other more rare types mixed in there. Once, once we actually have a diagnosis of cervix cancer, the next step is usually to proceed to the, um, to the operating room for an exam. Here in the U.S., we'll typically order a, a PET-CT scan before even making that step, and that, that's usually just sort of the order of events. Um, we'll get a PET-CT scan. This is something that's certainly not as available in uh, lower resource areas, but that's usually the best way with cervix cancer to look for any spread of disease or you know, lymph node metastases. Um, because those lymph nodes will light up um, if they are affected. But then it's really important to go to the operating room to have an exam under anesthesia. And we do a few different things with these exams, and, and they're, they're really important to actually understanding the spread of the disease. Um, one is assessing the parametria. And so uh, GYN oncologists will get really good at, um, once the patient is asleep and well anesthetized, they can feel you know either side lateral to the uterus, to understand if there's any thickening and if the disease has spread to the parametria, And that has big implications for what type of treatment the patient patient need. Um, and then typically we also do a cystoscopy and a proctoscopy at this time to look and see if there's any involvement in the bladder and the rectum. Um, sometimes we'll have the radiation oncologist come to the operating room and, and participate in the exam together because if the patient ends up needing radiation, then um, that will be helpful for them as well.
0: All right, And speaking of staging, that's like the million-dollar Kriog question. Um, there's always something about staging of various GYN malignancies, and cervical cancer is definitely a popular one. Um, though I actually I understand the cervical cancer staging system has changed recently, um, which throws a whole new wrench in for residents trying to learn this.
2: That's right. And honestly, it's been sort of a source of confusion for all people in GYN oncology, not just residents. So don't worry about that. Um, But yeah, so I can give you a little bit of insight into all of that. So we use, um, like with the other GYN cancers, we use the FIGO staging system. And there was the now old cervical cancer staging system from 2009, um, which was um, basically a clinically staged only system, where um, it relied mostly on the provider's clinical exam and some very basic radiology. And the the purpose of that was to be able to be used in all different sorts of settings, no matter the country, no matter the level of resources, um, especially since this cancer so profoundly affects uh, people in low resource areas. The problem is that with that staging system, they didn't take into account anything that happened after surgery or treatment. And so with our other types of cancer, we usually, you know, stage people surgically. So if someone has positive lymph nodes, et cetera, then that usually upstages them. With cervix, we weren't doing that at all. So, you know, you might in the old staging system, you might have staged someone based on their exam as a stage 1B, and then during their treatment, maybe you did a lymph node dissection and found that they had positive lymph nodes you, forevermore, you would just call them still a stage 1b with positive periordic lymph nodes instead of upstaging them to a stage 3. Nowadays, we have the new staging system, which came out in 2018. And this actually does incorporate radiologic and pathologic lymph node positivity into the staging system. So now it actually resembles the endometrial cancer staging a bit. Um, in, in terms of upstaging to a stage three with positive lymph nodes.
1: So walk us through that staging system, Erin. I know, you know sometimes it's hard to like talk about this in a podcast format, so of course we're gonna have this on our website as well, but I think it is important to talk about some of the differences um, from this new FIGO stage from 2018 compared to the one from previous.
2: Yeah, exactly. So there are a couple of different changes, mainly in the stage one and the stage three category. Something, I, I know it's so difficult with these staging systems to memorize everything because you get really bogged down in details. So I like to first take a step back and kind of lump things into broad categories. And, and so I always think, you know, okay, stage one is cancer that is confined to the cervix and the uterus. Stage two is looking at cancer, um, cervix cancer that has invaded beyond the uterus. So So because of where the cervix is, that usually means... Um, sort of beyond the uterus, maybe into the parametria, and then down into the vagina, but not all the way down to the bottom of the vagina. Stage three is one step further. So going all the way to the bottom bottom third of the vagina, extending all the way to the pelvic wall, maybe causing hydronephrosis. And then anyone with positive lymph nodes gets lumped in, into stage three now, like we talked about. Um, and then stage four is invasion beyond the pelvis, bladder, rectum, or any anything more distant. At the risk of being a little bit tedious here, we can go through a little bit more specific. Within stage one, which is that just confined to the cervix and uterus, it is important to know the difference between stage 1a and 1b, because that does make a difference in terms of actual treatment for the patient. A stage 1a is someone with microscopic cancer with a depth of invasion less than or equal to five millimeters whereas a 1B is the same but greater than five millimeters. And then a 1B with the new staging system actually is subdivided into three different categories. 1B1 is a tumor that's less than or equal to two centimeters. A 1B2 is somewhere between two and four centimeters in size. That's the greatest dimension. And a 1B3 is a tumor that's greater than four centimeters. And this is important because really anybody with a tumor greater than four centimeters is not a candidate for surgical management. And we'll hit on that a little bit more later. And then stage two, we talked about, you know, invading into the upper two-thirds of the vagina and invading into the parametria. So uh, stage 2A is um, just the vagina involvement. Stage 2B is the parametria. And then within stage three, uh, similarly, stage 3A invades into that lower third of the vagina, but not the pelvic sidewall. Stage 3B goes to the pelvic sidewall or minus causing hydronephrosis and the stage 3c involves the lymph nodes and then uh stage 4 like we said is spread to other organs so 4a goes to those adjacent organs and 4b goes to distant organs like the lungs
0: um it'll be a lot to memorize but i'm sure that we'll we'll be able to get a hold of it <laughs> after staring for a little while and hearing you recite it a couple of times
2: just replay my voice over and over <laughs>
0: <laughs> um I guess, though, that leads us into therapy, uh, Aaron. And my understanding of therapy was that some people, as you mentioned, can be surgical candidates and other people are very classically not surgical candidates. And there's not really a lot of in-between on that. Is that kind of the right gestalt?
2: That's definitely the right gestalt. And, you know, the, the rule of thumb and I think the approach that everyone should have to these patients is that in an ideal world we would have the intention of doing either curative surgery or curative radiation, but not both. So ideally, if you're going to pick a surgical candidate, you want to know that you can take care of all of it with the surgery alone and cure their cancer, and ideally not have to follow that up with more radiation. It happens sometimes because we can't always foresee what that final path report will will hold, but ideally that... Or if the cancer is more advanced than what would be appropriate for surgery, then go straight to radiation. Um, And we know that surgery and radiation are actually equally effective, more or less, depending on the stage. Um, But the morbidity of actually doing both, so starting with surgery and then following up with radiation, is really significant. And it can cause a lot of lifelong complications, which as we've talked about, these this is often a young population and they have a lot of life left to live. So that can, that can be really huge. And this is a tough topic for patients because, you know, they obviously, they have a cancer, they usually want it out. And so explaining that, you know, that they might not actually be a surgical candidate is sometimes difficult.
1: So Erin, talk to us a little bit about surgery. So like who can get surgery and then what types of surgery are available for patients with cervical cancer?
2: Yeah, so the the classic surgery for patients with cervical cancer is a radical hysterectomy, and this is different from that simple hysterectomy that we do in you know endometrial cancer, where you just take out the uterus, the cervix, tubes, um, etc. The radical hysterectomy is a little more extensive, so it it um, it's it's called as such because it requires radical dissection, and that means essentially that we just take more laterally so we take the parametria out along with the uterus so we take more of that side tissue we have to really dissect out the ureters all the way down to the level of the bladder just to be able to clear and get that tissue safely out and then we often are taking a little bit extra of the upper vagina as well so it's just a it's a, a more extensive surgery than your average hysterectomy and as a standard rule i usually think of um Of surgical candidates as being people who have tumors that are really localized to the cervix and that are less than four centimeters in size. And usually anything beyond that is probably not a good candidate for surgery. Um, Certainly, if anyone, if you suspect that anyone has spread to the parametria, if they have positive lymph nodes, like maybe on a PET scan or on a pathologic diagnosis. Um, usually those patients are not good candidates for surgery because you know that even if you do their surgery, even if that goes fine, you're probably going to have to follow it up with radiation. And like we said, we want to avoid doing both if possible. So to be a little bit more specific about who gets what surgery, so the, the, um, the one group that actually can get a simple hysterectomy is those stage 1A1s. If they don't have any evidence of LVSI or of lymphovascular space invasion, they can actually get a simple hysterectomy or that extrafascial hysterectomy. But that's really the only group. Everyone beyond that, if they're getting a hysterectomy, they are uh, getting a radical hysterectomy and usually a pelvic lymph node dissection as well. I think I think that kind of covers it. So we talked about, you know, basically up through stage 1b2s, that's that four centimeter cutoff. So the, that's kind of the cutoff at which we don't think people are are good Candidates for surgery anymore. Um, in some of the guidelines, you'll find that a stage 2A1, which is just involvement of the upper vagina, um, theoretically, those patients are candidates for radical hysterectomy. It doesn't happen very often, though. Um, and then, really, once you get beyond a 1B2, so a, you know, a tumor that's larger than four centimeters and beyond, those patients should be getting um, chemosensitizing radiation or chemo radiation, as we call it. And then, if patients have distant METs, we don't treat them with radiation at all. We, we just do chemotherapy for
1: them. One question that I had too about this is, you know, sometimes with ovarian cancer, there's this intention of going in to do surgery, but then you kind of do a peek and shriek and like close them back up or like send a sample. Is that ever something that happens with cervical cancer as well?
2: Yes. And that's actually a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up. Sometimes, you know, you'll do all this preoperative workup and you'll think that it's really early stage cancer. Um, You don't see any positive lymph nodes on their imaging, et cetera. But then when you get inside, you notice that maybe there are some enlarged lymph nodes. And that is is a big problem because, like we said, if there are positive nodes, that patient's going to need post-op radiation. And so we want to avoid putting them through the hysterectomy at all. So actually, the, the classic way to start these surgeries is to start with the pelvic lymph node dissection first. And if you come across any enlarged lymph nodes, you send them out to pathology right then and there while the patient's asleep if you have that, that ability. Um, and if they say, oh, yeah, it looks like cancer, you actually abort the hysterectomy and, and you don't proceed. You want to leave the uterus and cervix in place to help make radiation more feasible for that patient. Um, you would probably still go ahead and, and get a para, some periaortic para- lymph nodes to help you with radiation mapping down the road. Um, and then, you know, after, so presuming you do go through with the hysterectomy, um, afterwards, it's important to follow up on that pathology report and um, look at basically the, the depth of invasion, um, any involvement of the lymph nodes, the parametria, et cetera. And if those patients have sort of high risk features on their pathology report, oftentimes they do meet certain criteria and have to be sent for postoperative radiation.
0: Um, what about the ovaries at the time of hysterectomy? No, these are young patients, obviously. So do you take them? Do we leave them actually?
2: Really important question. So if a patient is premenopausal, um, usually you're actually going to leave the ovaries. Um, And that's because we know that removing the ovaries too early actually increases all-cause mortality for these these and all um, female patients. Um, and you know, the, the risk of metastasis to the ovaries is actually really low in cervical cancer. And you're usually only doing the surgery if you think it's a really early stage and not involving the ovaries. That being said, if your patient is sort of perimenopausal or postmenopausal um, with a cervix cancer, then it would probably make sense to take the ovaries out. Um, but uh, typically we're actually leaving them in place.
1: Uh, another quick question, Erin, about, um, mode of surgery, because I think a lot of, you know, hysterectomies that we're doing nowadays, we're doing in a minimally invasive fashion if we can, right? Especially for endometrial cancer, I feel like if you can, you try to do that in a minimally invasive fashion, at least from what I was seeing in residency. I will have to say that, you know, I only was part of probably like two radical hysterectomies in residency and neither were done in a minimally invasive fashion. Is, is there a reason behind that? Um, or, you know, is, is that possible to be done minimally invasively?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this has been actually a really uh, interesting change in practice over the last couple of years. In 2018, the results of the LAC trial came out, and this was a big uh, phase three study. It was a randomized clinical trial, and they were comparing outcomes of radical hysterectomies done um, minimally invasively, either laparoscopically or robotically versus open. Um, and the study actually closed early because there were higher, significantly higher rates of recurrence and deaths in the minimally invasive surgery group. Um, so, at four and a half years after surgery, about ninety-six percent of patients who had open surgery were doing well and had no cancer recurrence. But only eighty-six percent of of the patients who had had minimally invasive surgery were still recurrence-free. So that was a difference. And then looking at, you know, at three years. Of the patients who had open surgery, 99% of them were still alive. But in the patients who had minimally invasive surgery, only about 93.8% of them were still alive. Um, and you know, this is, this is a big deal because pretty much the field had entirely switched to doing laparoscopic radical hysterectomies, um, much less bloody, much better visualization, um, and you know, nice for patients to get out of the hospital faster and, and better recoveries. Um, but, you know, that difference between 99% and 93% for a, for a young population um, who have, you know, all early stage cancers, a lot of people said we can't ignore that data. And so actually there's been a really big sweeping change um, across, the, across the world where people are for the most part now saying, okay, open radical hysterectomy is now the standard of care. Um, that's not to say that this might not you know, that this might not change. I think um, there's probably still a lot more to come on this, and we're still trying to understand why that difference exists. And there may still be certain patients who are candidates for minim- minimally invasive surgery, but um, not without extensive counseling on the new data.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's surprising, especially since you think about everything that's changed towards laparoscopic surgery um, and robotic surgeries, too, you know, and just thinking about how how wild that is to swing all the way back to to open surgery. Let me ask you about this, Aaron. There are some patients, again, you mentioned this, a young population, sometimes not having completed childbearing. Um, We talked a little bit about ovarian preservation earlier. What about patients who is desiring of fertility sparing? Is there any appropriate candidate for that? Um, And if so, how do we go about it?
2: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, there is a lot of fertility sparing treatment for cervix cancer. Um, anyone, if you recall that, that um, group of patients who are stage 1A1 without any LVSI, they were the candidates for simple hysterectomy mm-hmm. and standard of care treatment. Those patients, if they want to do fertility sparing, um, they can have uh, just a cold knife cone as long as those margins are negative. And that um, seems to be very good treatment. And, you know, that you can give the patient go ahead to go ahead and start planning their families. Um, In patients who are a 1A1 who do have LVSI or a 1A2, you start to worry a little bit about spread to the lymph nodes because, um, you know, obviously those tumor cells have mobilized a bit. And so with those patients, um, we can offer them either a cone or a radical trachelectomy. Cones are kind of coming coming in more now um, because they're a little bit less morbid uh, in terms of procedures for the patients. And then usually we also add a lymph node dissection, the pelvic lymph nodes, to make sure there was no spread and that we're not missing anything. Um, and then uh, stage 1B1s actually, you know, if the tumor is less than two centimeters, those people can still be candidates for a radical trachelectomy and lymph node dissection.
1: So I, we spent some time on surgery, Erin, and I wanted to ask a little bit more about other types of treatments because, you know, we um, haven't yet talked about the whole group of patients who can't get surgery, right, who need other types of treatment. So um, can you talk a little bit more about like radiation and chemotherapy and like what what different types those patients may need? Yes, definitely. So, you know,
2: in, in cervix cancer, we often talk about um, this combination called Chemo radiation or chemosensitizing radiation, um, and it's basically a a baby dose of chemotherapy administered, sort of co-administered at the same time as radiation. Um, and the radiation for cervix cancer is administered in a really specific way that I think is kind of helpful to understand. Um, and so, if you know, you know, preoperatively that the patient is really not a candidate for surgery, then you. Like we talked about before, you really want to keep the uterus and cervix in place because it helps with administering the radiation in an appropriate location to treat that, that site of cervix cancer. Like we talked about before, you're usually going to have started with a, a PET CT scan to help you look at spread to the lymph nodes. Um, and if the periodic lymph nodes aren't lighting up, you'll usually want to do a, a lymph node dissection there just to see if that cancer has spread to the periodic lymph nodes. That will help with mapping the radiation fields. Once you actually get to the radiation treatment, the radiation is co-administered with chemotherapy. And usually the chemo is a small weekly dose of cisplatin. And um, it's given once a week, usually for five or six cycles. So maybe, you know, Monday for six times in a row. Um, And then the radiation itself is a combination of two different types. Um, There is the sort of whole pelvic radiation or the external beam radiation. And then there's the internal treatment or the brachytherapy. Um, external beam treatment is um, about 45 gray and it's divided into 25 fractions. So that means for the patient's perspective um, that they are coming in every single day, five days a week for five weeks to get all of that external beam treatment, which you can imagine for a lot of these patients is really tough, especially if they live really far from a from a treatment center that actually has radiation oncology. Um, and then the second part of the treatment is brachytherapy or localized radiation. Um, And they get another 40 gray through this, and it's also divided up into fractions. Um, You've probably seen patients get this before, but it's usually administered in one of a few different ways. The most common is tandem and ovoids, where there's a tandem placed through the cervix and then ovoids kind of nestled up against the cervix. And these are implants um, through which radiation sources can um, be inserted and left for a certain amount of time to, to give off localized radiation treatment. Most places now are probably doing HDR or high dose rate where they come and they have these implants placed. Um, They go to the radiation suite and, you know, have a treatment for just a few minutes at a time. And then, you know, um, usually those implants will be removed and then they'll come back for a later fraction. Some places are still doing the more old fashioned um, low dose rate or LDR technology where the patients have um, the, the radiation inserted in place and then those remain in place for the duration of a couple of days and they stay in the hospital throughout that time. They have to be laying flat. Um, and that, you know, the patient is technically radioactive. So that's, it's a pretty difficult treatment to go through. Um, and then the last thing that people can do is is interstitial, um, treatment. So these are for patients who have really obliterated anatomy. Like there's really no normal cervix anymore. They can't fit anything up through that. Um, And the radiation oncologist will actually load radiation onto needles and then the needles will be placed into the tumor to get at the exact um, anatomic location. And the only other thing I would just say about this treatment is that we know that it's really important to stay on schedule. So this is a tough schedule for patients to keep, but we know that if they start missing appointments, if they start stretching out in um, duration of treatment time, once they get beyond the eight week mark, the efficacy of the treatment starts to drop off. Um, so I always really emphasize that for patients.
0: Um, and you mentioned, Erin, a little while ago that for patients with metastatic disease, they don't receive radiation.
2: Right. With those patients, uh, we know the disease has already you know, uh, spread to distant sites. And so the best way to treat them is with systemic chemotherapy. Um, and for those patients, we're usually giving a combination of cisplatin, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab.
1: Um, and last question on the podcast, Erin, where our two subspecialties overlap. What about cervical cancer in pregnancy? How are these patients treated? Yeah, this is
2: an important topic. You know, the breast cancer we know is the most common cancer diagnosed during pregnancy, but cervix cancer is the most common can- um, GYN malignancy that's diagnosed in pregnancy. And it's usually diagnosed early stage because, you know, oftentimes these patients are just coming in suddenly for for increased care while they're pregnant. Um, But it does really pose some difficult problems for patients and and for providers. Um, And so it it sort of depends on where they're at in in the pregnancy and what their wishes are. So if the gestational, sorry, if the gestation is still um, pre viable and the patient desires uh, termination and to just focus on cancer treatment, then we usually offer a gravid hysterectomy um, or grab a radical hysterectomy and lymph node dissection if that's indicated, um, or you know the, the gestation is beyond 24 weeks, or if the patient desires continuation of pregnancy, no matter where they are in the pregnancy, um, then they have the option to actually start some sort of neoadjuvant chemo while they're still pregnant, and and they can still get some sort of treatment for their cancer through the duration of the pregnancy. And then um, have you know either their surgical or radiation treatment after they deliver. We really never deliver patients vaginally when they have a cervical cancer because we you know not only would that be risky to deliver through a cervical mass that might bleed a lot, um, but it actually can disseminate the uh, cancer cells and sort of seed the, the vaginal area or you know the episiotomy scar sometimes as well. Um, and so usually these patients are delivered by um, Hysterotomy and that incision has to be made far away from the cervical mass. Um, and then, you know, if surgery is the appropriate mode of treatment, they can have a cesarean radical hysterectomy at the time. Or um, if they're too advanced for surgery, then you'd close the hysterotomy and then um, refer them for radiation afterwards.
0: That is a surgery that I hope I never have to see or participate in.
1: Agreed. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. <laughs>
0: Um, well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving us the full lowdown on cervical cancer. This was super helpful,
2: yeah, my pleasure. I know we we got into the weeds a
1: little bit, but I hope it was helpful and answered all the questions that are out there.
0: yeah, so Faye, why don't we try and summarize real quick?
1: All right, so we first talked about the incidence, the epidemiology, and then of course the disparities of cervical cancer, so we discussed that while cervical cancer is almost a completely preventable disease, Um, unfortunately, the burden of cancer and cancer-related deaths is disproportionately weighted towards populations that have low access to adequate screening or adequate treatments, Um, and 90% of cervical cancer deaths occur in low- and middle-income countries. With that in mind, however, um, even in the United States, which we consider a high-resource country, um, we still have, in 2020, a little over 4,000 deaths from cervical cancer. And even in the U.S., there are still racial, social, economic, and geographic disparities that occur.
0: We talked about some additional risk factors for cervical cancer, including the most important, which is chronic high-risk HPV infection. But some others can include early age of sexual debut, immunosuppression, other sexually transmitted infections or other HPV related disease, um, and smoking is a major modifiable risk factor as well. Primary and secondary prevention is really important with cervical cancer. Again, with primary prevention through the HPV vaccine, with over 90% efficacy in preventing HPV serotype 16 and 18, and demonstrated in other countries with excellent HPV vaccination programs to reduce the incidence of cervical cancer. Secondary prevention is through a pap smear, though, again, as we mentioned, primary HPV testing is likely to be taking over in the future.
1: In terms of clinical presentation, early-stage cervical cancer is often asymptomatic, though some patients may have discharge or abnormal vaginal bleeding, and it's usually diagnosed on routine screening or pelvic exam. Advanced disease can present um, as limedema, flank pain, sciatica, and possibly even uh, fistula presentations. Diagnosis is really made via histopathological assessment of a cervical biopsy, and we know that 80% of cervical cancer is squamous and 20% um, is adenocarcinoma. Um, And usually once that diagnosis is made, especially in the United States, the next steps would be uh, getting a PET or a CT scan to evaluate spread of the disease and then proceeding to the operating room for an exam under anesthesia and other indicated procedures.
0: Cervical cancer has undergone a recent change in the staging system. As we mentioned, the old staging system that may be common for you guys knowing out there is the clinical staging system um, that, again, used total clinical criteria in order to stage the disease. In 2018, Figo introduced a new staging system that will go over the major bookmarks here. Stage 1 is confined to the cervix and uterus. Stage 2 invades beyond the uterus but not into the lower third of the vagina or pelvic wall. Stage Three involves that lower third of the vagina or extends to the pelvic wall, causing potentially hydronephrosis or involves lymph node chains, and stage four is distant metastasis
1: in terms of therapy, the principle behind therapy is that we ideally we would try to have patients not undergo both surgery and radiation. And so for patients who are candidates for surgery, these are patients who usually have early disease. And that means small tumor, confined to the cervix, less than four centimeters in size, with no evidence of spread to the parametria, lymph nodes, or anything else. In terms of uh, surgical approach, we tend to leave the ovaries in situ unless the patient is postmenopausal. And because of the LAC trial in 2018, there has been a shift um, for standard of care to do abdominal radical hysterectomy. instead of minimally invasive hysterectomies.
0: The alternative option for treatment that we spoke about is radiation therapy if patients are not surgical candidates. Again, we talk about this as chemoradiation primarily where patients will receive weekly small doses of cisplatin over the course of five to six cycles and then combine this with whole pelvic or external beam radiation therapy with internal brachytherapy. Um, There are also other types of brachytherapy, various methods that we talked about during the podcast, but it's most important for us to remember that schedule is important as the timing of radiation therapy is crucial for optimal cell kill. Chemotherapy alone is indicated for metastatic disease.
1: And finally, in terms of cervical cancer diagnosis in pregnancy, it is the most common GYN malignancy in pregnancy. And management will depend upon viability versus previability as well as patient's desire for termination. Um, if a patient does desire to continue the pregnancy, then the patient should have options for neoadjuvant chemotherapy until delivery with um, a recommendation to deliver via cesarean section um, and possible cesarean radical hysterectomy at that time.
0: I think that sums it up. So once again, this is Nick.
1: This is Faye.
0: And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So
1: if you enjoy this podcast, go ahead and go on to your podcatcher on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and give us a five-star rating and review.
0: Find us online on Twitter at CriogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at over coffee or you can head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash coffee Send us some love and we'll send you some swag.
1: We have show notes for this show and every other show, so go ahead and go on to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com.
0: If you have a question, comment for us, a correction on this or any of our previous episodes, or you want to send us and Aaron some love, email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.